Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The FT. Welcome back to Banking Weekly with me, Patrick Jenkins. I'm the banking editor here at the FT. And I'm joined in the studio today by Brooke Masters, the FT's Chief Regulation Correspondent, Sam Jones, the FT's Hedge Fund Correspondent, and Charlene Goff, who covers retail banking. There's going to be plenty for us to discuss today. Last week was a a fairly busy one. We had developments on the regulatory front, on the pay front, and some transactions as well. This week, we're going to focus on the latest EU initiative on bankers' bonuses and what this means, really, for those working in the sector. Then we'll focus in on the figures for Q2 earnings. The second quarter versus the first quarter has been less busy and and less successful for the investment banks, but we'll try and work out what these figures suggest for the rest of the year. And then we'll go on to look at the UK banks. And we've, we've had some transactions, as I say, last week and uh, another one today, actually. So we'll, we'll be asking what, which banks are getting rid of, of what bits and why. And then finally, we'll take a quick look at how things have progressed on stress testing since last week's show. First, though, to bankers' bonuses. This is something that Brooke and Sam, you both have been uh, paying a lot of attention to. Maybe, Brooke, if you could just run us through exactly what happened last week on the on the EU front. Uh, the EU Parliament and the Council of Member States came to an agreement that there will be legislation that will be voted on formally by the Parliament on Wednesday that w- essentially codifies the principles that the G20 keep talking about, about how bonuses need to be tied to risk and there need to be mandatory deferrals. The actual provisions that the EU is going to be adopting are not that onerous. It's basically only 50% of bonuses can be cash, and somewhere between 40 and 60% must be deferred between three and five years, depending on the size of the bonus. It's not that different from what's already in place in the UK, in France, the Netherlands. However, what's interesting about it is it's a law. It's not an agreement to do it this year, and it, in theory, it goes on forever, which means that the EU has taken a far more aggressive and long and far-reaching stance on this issue than any of the other uh, G20 participants. Sam, there was some reporting around when this all came out that it was going to really hit hedge fund managers. Is that right? I think there's still a little bit of nuance that that hasn't been gone into about the extent to which the law will impact upon the hedge fund industry. It will, or it does appear to, catch alternative investment managers. So that's private equity managers, hedge funds, the kind of whole commut of asset managers, in fact. In which case, if applied strictly, then the letter of the law would be disastrous for the UK and the UK's hedge fund industry, a lot of which is very mobile and and could actually quite easily re-domicile to elsewhere offshore, such as Switzerland, or, or even actually in Asia, places like Singapore in particular. What the rules say is that they will apply the same strictures on deferring pay, on uh, locking up payments over time to hedge fund managers. And if that's the case, it would be fairly disastrous. The problem is that it's going to be left, and Brooke can probably say more on this, it's going to be, or it appears to be left up to national regulators to decide exactly to what extent the rules will be applied to hedge funds. So here in the UK, it's probably unlikely that after a consultation the FSA will apply the letter the law. Given that the UK is by far the biggest hedge fund community in the EU, obviously what the FSA does is pretty important. 
Absolutely. The FSA has said that what they will do is they're going to apply the EU rules, assuming they're passed, to the banks that already are hit by the FSA's own pay code, which, again, is not all that different. And they're going to hold a consultation. There's also a general feeling that the Alternative Investment Fund Manager Directive that is moving through the EU also has pay rules that are a little more closely tailored to how the industry works. It has some of the same principles, but they're not written in a way that is completely disastrous for the industry. And so the thought is that what the FSA may say is we're actually going to apply these principles along the lines of this directive that's coming anyway, which I think the industry can largely live with. Okay, well, let's let's hope that's the case because bankers and hedge fund managers are going to be watching very closely how this pans out. Let's move on to our second topic, second quarter earnings and the outlook. I think it's fair to say that across the board, most investment banks will have had a quieter second quarter than first quarter. In some ways, that's a traditional trend, but particularly this year, seemingly the kind of boom circumstances that allowed banks to make hay in the first quarter disappeared in the second quarter. Maybe, Brooke, again, to start with, what is your impression as to what's going to happen for the rest of the year? I think it's a little tough to tell. I mean, I was talking to somebody in the industry who refers to it, we're having an Annie moment, that the deals are always coming tomorrow. Lots of people have ideas lined up and no ability to execute because the markets are so uncertain. I think there's still a chance that things could pick up in the third quarter. But if they don't pick up in the third quarter, I don't think they'll pick up in the fourth. So I think the crucial question is what happens when everybody gets back from summer vacation? Yeah, certainly deal making seems to have been, you know, there's been little pockets of it, but nothing huge. What about on the trading front, Sam? I think with the Volcker rule coming to fruition in the States, there there are certainly moves from banks to dispose of or think about scaling back some of their prop operations. I think a lot of that has already taken place, though. You know, since since 2008, a lot of prop traders were laid off, and so it has been running at low levels for some time. That said, there have been a couple of transactions. There's one today, KBC sold off its prop operation to Daiwa, and there have been a few other spin-outs. Wells Fargo has its prop operation in the States um, has been spun out into a separate hedge fund called Overland, and there'll be moves for more of that, I think. Yeah, and I guess what well, is too early to say in terms of second quarter retail banking earnings, we're going to get those in the next couple of weeks. But Charlene, have you got a view coming back from your holiday as to uh, what the retail banking sector has got to look forward to for the rest of the year? I think it's still pretty tough for the retail banking sector. Interest rates still very low, which is putting pressure on, on their margins. But I think compared with a year ago when we saw the likes of RBS and Lloyds taking these in- incredible amounts of impairments on their bad loans, things should start to look a bit better. We already saw Lloyds back in profit in the first quarter, so it should be able to build on that momentum and hopefully a bit of improvement. In, in RBS as well as there's lower losses on loans, but still particularly tough. It was quite interesting, actually. I, I, there was an analyst report saying that they actually prefer uh, Lloyd's to Barclays now because Barclays is getting the stress on the retail side and also the slowdown in Barcap, um, the investment banking arm. So things are a little tougher for Barclays. Well, that takes us neatly on to our third topic for today, the UK banks and their divestments. And Lloyd's has announced this morning, I think, it's finally pushed the button on on this big divestment of some of its industrial holdings. Can you tell us a bit about that? It's been a a long time coming, this deal. It's actually the integrated finance portfolio. And this this is quite a controversial private equity arm that Lloyd's inherited from HBOS. It's a portfolio of about 40 different companies. It's got stakes in uh, View Cinemas is a big one. TM Lewin, the shirt makers, is a another one, but a whole variety of retail 
retailers and service companies. And how did Lloyds end up with things like that? Was it just that loans went bad or was it actually investments? Well, it was actually investments that were made by Peter Cummings, who was at at HBOS. And this was a big problem, really, with this portfolio that he went into a lot of these companies really at the peak of the market and they paid top whack. And it was also quite an interesting setup because uh, HBOS was providing not only the debt but taking equity as well. So they had a big dual investment, if you like, which Lloyd's really didn't like that concept. So it's been trying to sell this business for a long time. The price valued the portfolio about $480 million, which I think it paid about $1.2 billion for these investments. So it's taken a big hit. They've announced that sale and who's buying it? Well, they've actually just sold a majority stake to Collar Capital, the private equity company, and that will just be taking over the management, I think, 60% stake. It's keeping the existing management in, in place, but Lloyd's decided to keep a stake in the business to hopefully sort of claw back some value when these uh, companies do recover. And it does feel like things are starting to move in terms of the really troubled banks and how they're uh, restructuring themselves. We saw on Friday, RBS sold another little bit of its Asia network, the India operations going to HSBC. And I suspect we're going to see more of a drip drip of, of these deals both from RBS and Lloyds in particular over the next few months. Yeah I think we will and I think actually really RBS has made quite a lot of headway in, in the divestments we saw a number of small sales a few weeks ago of its Middle Eastern and Asian operations, it's really selling them quite slowly, I think it would probably prefer to have done it in one big chunk but getting there and it's also making uh, some progress in, in selling the branches and sort of a number of its other bigger operations so it's commodities business and it's world pay payments business. So the progress is being made. Um, with Lloyd's, it has made a couple of other smaller divestments, such as its estate agencies and, uh, and its insurance business. It hasn't really made any significant progress in the bigger divestments, so its branches, for example. But it's got four years to do that. So I think Lloyd's decided just to take things a little bit more slowly. Let's move on to our final topic of conversation for today. And this is something, Charlene, you missed out on a lot of excitement last week, stress testing of Europe's banks. This has been a hugely political issue as well as a financial one. And it's something that's really going to come to a head over the next couple of weeks. The latest we're hearing is that in the third week of July, the European Union's oversight body for bank regulation is going to publish results of for stress testing about 100 of Europe's banks. Can you bring us up to date on where we've got to on this, Brooke? Essentially what's happened is there's a move in Europe to reassure everyone about the strength of the banks. And they're taking a, a page out of the US book where they did stress testing last year of their biggest banks. And it proved to be a tremendous boon to all of those banks because everybody who passed saw their share prices recover. Yeah, um, Spanish banks here are particularly keen to kind of replicate that bounce, aren't they? Because Spain feels that they've been unfairly tarnished because of their sovereign position. Those betting against Europe are are singling Spain out as, as the next Greece, if you like, and therefore their banks in particular are getting panned. They seem very much to be behind the initiative to try and get Europe as a whole to publish these stress tests. And it seems to have to have worked. It does seem to have worked. I think the real question is exactly how are they going to design these stresses and you know what do you do about say Greek sovereign debt? Do you you know do you take a worst case scenario that Greece goes down or is that too politically difficult? The latest we were kind of aware of is that I think they've they've tried to short circuit that political difficulty and and go with two models really for involving the, the stress testing of sovereign debt. Firstly, we've got 
uh, the idea that you have full disclosure of each bank's sovereign exposure. Secondly, you have a kind of general stress, maybe a haircut of about 3% applied to all sovereign holdings. So you don't get into the political difficulty of actually saying Greece is the worst and therefore we're going to discount hugely for Greece. Critics will obviously say that's skirting around the issue and therefore it'll make the exercise pointless. But I think ultimately we probably will get a, a bit of a bounce in terms of some of the bank's shares. I think the disclosures have to help the banks that are in good shape. If you look at, for example, the Spanish banks, the big Spanish banks are probably fine. They're smaller ones. Some of them are in real trouble. What about opportunities brought about by this stress testing exercises? We published stories toward the end of last week about the capital raising that would likely be triggered by some of these stress tests, either by banks that get close to failing or that do fail. There's certainly talk of hedge funds sniffing around certain of the weaker banks uh, across Europe. But what are, you, what are you hearing, Sam? Well, I think it depends on the level of disclosure and it depends on confidence. Because I think in one sense, you know, there's a little bit of a kind of red flag to a bull element with some of the stress testing. I mean, it's very clear that Europe's banks are in, in not a kind of healthy, wholly healthy situation at the moment. And I think the problem is that for a lot of them, it's a liquidity situation rather than necessarily an insolvency one. And while the stress testing might address risks about insolvency and that kind of thing and, and capital buffers, um, I'm not so confident, or I don't, I, people who speak to me don't seem to be so confident that it's actually going to solve the liquidity crisis. And with the ECB withdrawing its support in that area, I think that's the kind of critical area of stress. So I think there is renewed interest in um, the banking system in Europe as being very frail, certainly. Um, that said, you know, as, as you said, that will also mean probably capital raising and, and with it um, an opportunity to probably to make money. So short selling opportunities now, I guess, and, and maybe investment yeah, opportunities maybe further investment down the line. when it comes around. Yeah. And, and just because the, the volume of issuance will probably be so large, then the pricing will be attractive too. And also there are unlikely to be lots of long-term buyers of this stuff. So hedge funds would be a natural kind of uh, group to sell it to, especially if they've been buying protection on banks now or have already yeah. done so. It makes the actual debt a good acquisition later on. Well, that's one of the running stories that I'm sure we'll come back to over the coming weeks. Thank you for your thoughts on that. We'll also obviously be following over the next couple of weeks the further disclosure of quarter two earnings. And I think also the transactions that we've seen starting um, will be, be an interesting trend to watch. All that's left for me to do is to thank you, Brooke, Charlene and Sam, for joining me today. To thank you for listening. Banking Weekly was produced by LJ Filatrani. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts support for this podcast and the following message come from corient corient provides wealth management services centered around you as one of the largest integrated fee only registered investment advisors in the u.s corient has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals no matter how complex Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.